In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And, and Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to our baptism candidates, to our family and our friends who are here and joining us. And welcome everyone to our service once again. Uh, I'm Joseph, the youth pastor here. In case you don't know me, let's just gather and pray as we come into the Lord's word today. Lord, we thank you for the gift of baptism. We thank you for the gift of new life that we have in you. We pray that today as we look at this passage, that Lord, you reveal to us and speak into our hearts the truth of following you. That Lord, through your words today, may we have a renewed sense of what it means to follow you wherever you may go. Lord, speak today, speak through me, speak in spite of me. Let us dive into your word and may your truth pierce our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who knows this song? I love him, I love him, I love him, and where he goes, and I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go. There isn't an ocean too deep, no mountain so high he can keep, keep me away. And now my youth look at me like I'm born in 1945. <laughs> The 1963 Peggy March song, right? Um, famously covered by Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act. And just to clarify my age, both of these things happened before I was born. Um, but the lyrics of the song echo the first dialogue that we hear in the passage today. And it echoes the same meaning as the declarations that our baptism candidates and we in times past have made as well. But you know, as the cliche goes, talk is cheap, actions speak louder than words, the proof is in the pudding. That no matter the words that we utter, the weight of our words are shown in our actions. Anyone here done a group project before, whether that's at work or in the, or in the office or in school? Any, everyone here has done a group project before, right? I love this. Around 60 people agreed to stab Julius Caesar. At the end of it, Caesar's body only had 23 stab wounds. Even back then, not all the members of a group project would do their part. If I never laugh, one, okay, never mind. <laughs> See, the point is this. True commitment, true commitment is seen in our action. True commitment is not seen in words uttered, but the actions that follow. And as we dive into the Word today, we want to have those baptism vows that we heard earlier right at the forefront of our minds. 
that we recognize them as key commitments, as vows taken before the Lord. And of course, commitments don't mean that we need to live a perfect life, but it does mean that we have chosen to follow the way of the Lord, that when we fail and when we fall, we choose to turn back to what God has called us to. And so our roadmap today as we dive into this, into these interactions from Luke, will look a little bit like this. We're going to look at the three interactions, and I'm going to call them the three curious cases. And then we're going to reflect on them in a segment that I will title, Three Empty Spaces. So we're going to journey through this together to look at three curious cases and reflect on three empty spaces. So the first case is the case of passionate desire. And as the text goes, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, as in Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Notice this. It is the man who comes to Christ and offers to follow him. He comes and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Christ responds with the reality of the cost. His response is a stark reminder of the truth where he speaks about how even the animals may have a place to sleep, but he himself has no guarantee of such a thing. Maybe it's helpful to think about it like when we are thinking about signing up for a gym membership. Obviously, I don't have one. Okay, but when we think about signing up for a gym membership, Michael, you have one or not? No, I also don't have, right? Okay, <laughs> when we think about signing up for a, for a gym membership, right, sometimes we think of all the benefits that we can get. We think about, oh, I'm going to look like Ethan who goes to the gym. Whoa, I'm going to look like some macho guy who, uh, yeah, I'm going to do all these things, right? And, and we are so close to signing on that dotted line and then someone comes up to us, hey, 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 you're spending $4,000 on this gym membership. You sure or not? And then we pause and we think again. Suddenly, we are hit by this bout of reality. Hey, that's true. Uh. I probably won't ever use it that much. And that's a little bit like what Jesus is doing here. Notice he, he's not actually dissuading this guy from following him. He's simply saying, do you actually know what you're saying? Because here, when Jesus talks about having no place to lay his head, he's not talking about the fact that he has, that he's in total poverty. He's not talking about the lack of a physical place to stay. Instead, he's simply calling us to realize that following him is foregoing the comfort that we know. It's not saying that it's guaranteed that you have no place to stay, but it is saying and it is challenging us to relinquish our security in the things of this world. It is challenging us to say, can you live with the idea that Christ alone is our security and not the physical things that we have? My New Testament lecturer once looked at us and said, you want to know how, whether you are really secure in Christ, you just ask yourself this question. You think about your bank account now, and then tomorrow you give it all away. Secure or not? And the whole class, Ugh. right? But that's about, that's what it is. That's the idea of what it means to follow Christ. So Jesus is not saying that we cannot have these physical securities. 
He's not saying that we cannot own houses. He's not saying any of these things, but he is saying that following me means we hold to all of them loosely. Means that we find our security in Christ and Christ alone. It's like the challenge that faced Abraham, right? To leave his home country not knowing where God was leading him. Or this couple, we're going to have a video next, yeah. Or this couple, um, Nick and Ruth Ripkin. Their missionary story is captured in this film called The Insanity of God. And maybe one day we can find a chance to, to screen that. The youth will have heard me pull stories from this incredible movie before. But we're going to take a look at this trailer about what exactly it means to follow Christ. Born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married. We'll start that again. 90% born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married and buried in the church. will never share Jesus with another person. No one had ever sat down with us and said, this is the job of a missionary. It was like getting in a plane in the New Testament and getting off the plane in the Old Testament. It was like I'd flown into hell. We saw what, what darkness was. We'd seen darkness in Somalia, and all of a sudden now we saw darkness up front and personal in our family. But we, um, we had no idea what was coming. Out of the ashes of, of Somalia and after the death of our son, we were compelled to return to some of the toughest places uh, in the world for the gospel. There was something we needed to know. Is Jesus worth it? There begins uh, a pilgrimage of sitting at the feet of believers in persecution and ask them, teach us. believe that there is a free church and a suffering church there's just the church resurrected Christ himself. The movie captures the story of this couple. It's called The Insanity of God. If you want to watch the movie, they captures the story of this couple who goes to places like Somalia. They lost their child there out of a disease, if I remember correctly, because they went to that country. They went back and they went out again but not detracted from their missionary call, not detracted from following Christ, but instead to go to the places with the deepest persecutions in the world and witness what Christ is like there and there find what God was doing. 
One of the most incredible stories in that movie is how they were in this place in China, and they were there preaching, and they spoke to these people, and it was an underground church, and the next morning, they, they went to sleep. The next morning at 5 a.m., they were rumbling, rumblings all over the place, and they woke up, and they thought, oh no, they got found out because this missionary couple came. And when they woke up, what they saw, what they found, was not a people who got caught. It was the whole underground church right there on their knees praying and interceding for them as the couple because they had shared the story from Somalia. That is what it looks like to follow Christ no matter what the call is. Will we follow Christ when it doesn't make sense? Because this first story this case reminds us that the high cost of discipleship is a willingness to let go of our security. And the second case is this, the case of a gracious invitation. This time round, Jesus is the one who approaches this would-be disciple and he extends the invitation. He says, follow me. And the fellow replies, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus responds, leave the dead to bury their own dead but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. On the surface, it seems like a very reasonable request, but not really, for two reasons. One, most biblical scholars will interpret this to say that this was not an immediate request. This request was to say, let me go and take care of my father till the day that he dies, meaning the dad was not dead yet. Right? It refers to an indefinite amount of time where this would-be disciple would first wait for his father to die and then choose to follow Christ. And in the wider context of Jesus speaking into a Jewish society, the lesson to be drawn or the thing to think about is this, that in the wider society, in the Jewish culture, in Jewish obligations, the obligation to bury and to complete this family obligation was part and parcel of their social life. So in other words, he wasn't referring necessarily to the act of burying a father per se, but he was saying, will you choose to follow Christ above what society says your obligations are, even if society says that the obligations involve your family? Put into our context is the equivalent of us going, after my kids are married, I will follow Christ. Once I progress to point X in my career, I will follow Christ. When my parents pass away, I can follow Christ. After I have three kids, I can follow Christ. My kids finish this exam, I can follow Christ. They are all milestones, but there's an indefinite amount of time to that milestone. And here, Christ is calling for obedience now. Christ is calling for obedience now. And in that context, Jesus responds in a rather bizarre way. If we look at this statement, leave the dead to bury the dead. What is that supposed to mean? It's a line that doesn't make sense. It's an absurd phrase that is literally impossible. But there are two possible meanings here. One, it's pure rhetoric. He's making a point that doesn't really have any meaningful content but designed to have an effect in other words, he's simply saying, following me is more important than obligations to society and your family. But I think that we need to give a little bit more importance to the second possibility, that perhaps it refers to the spiritually dead. 
See, Jesus' full response is leave the dead to bury the dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In this case then, Jesus is making this point that our most important task as disciples is to proclaim, is to proclaim the kingdom of God. To speak to our family members, to speak to our friends, to speak to those around us that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that becomes especially likely when we consider that the beginning of chapter 9 starts with the sending out of the 12 apostles and chapter 10 begins with the sending out of the 72. So sandwiched right between these two commissionings of disciples to go into all the world and preach, Jesus says, Preaching my kingdom, proclaiming my kingdom is the most important thing that one could do. That to proclaim my kingdom precedes any familial duty. Why? Because if we have not yet proclaimed the kingdom of God to our family, if we have not yet proclaimed the kingdom of God to our friends, them being physically dead is the least of our worries. That if they are spiritually dead and they have not yet known the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is the point of looking after their physical death? And he is saying right there that the spiritual death is so much more significant than the physical one. And so if we have yet to fulfill this duty of proclaiming Christ to them, of speaking the life of Christ into their lives, then the burying of them physically is of no importance. A professor of exegesis, George Bradford Carr, at the University of Oxford said this, a man or woman must be prepared to sacrifice security, duty, and affection if he or she is to respond to the call of the kingdom, a call so urgent and imperative that all other loyalties must give way before it. The most difficult choices in life are not between the good and the evil, but between the good and the best. The most difficult choices in life are not between the good and the evil, but between the good and the best. See, notice here, Christ is not rejecting familial duties. He is testing the earnestness of these would-be disciples. He is asking them, would you choose to follow me above all else. That does not mean they don't have responsibilities to their families, but he's simply challenging them with the notion, will you follow me above all else? Further down in Luke, this is what it says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A quick story. This is the story of Dr. Tam Waichia, and she is someone who went to serve through UNICEF in Africa, and she felt God calling her there. And as she was considering that call, someone said to her, but you'll miss Chinese New Year, your own birthday, your firstborn's birthday, seven weeks of time with family. That's too much of a loss, no? And even as that was weighing on her, then just before she left, a missions mobilizer came and told her, I do not recommend anyone leaving his or her spouse and children behind to do his work. But in the face of that, this is what her husband said, you must go. God has given me peace to release you. He will see our family through. See, in the economy of God, if God calls, God will provide. 
In the economy of God, if God calls, God will provide. He's not saying that we get to neglect all our responsibilities, but He is saying that if I have called you there, I will take care of everything else. If I have called you there, I will take care of everything else. And so our obligation is to put Christ above all else. The high cost of discipleship is to put the proclamation of God's kingdom above all else, trusting that He cares for the rest. And the final case, the case of hesitant commitment. This guy says, I will follow you, but first let me say farewell to those at home. This sounds better, right? This sounds just like, I'm going to come, but let me go and say bye-bye first. I'm going to come, but let me go and say goodbye to my old life, to my family, to my friends, and, and so on. Charles Spurgeon says this, Oh, young man, when you are thinking of leaving the world, be afraid of these farewells. They have been the ruin of hundreds of hopeful people. They have been almost persuaded, but they have gone to their old companions just to give them the last kiss and the last shake of the hand, and we have not seen any more of them. Be careful that our one more action reflects that God is not the priority, right? Let me finish my exams and I can start doing my devotion. Let me get used to this new position that I have in my job, then I can start tithing. Let me and let my child get into the primary school of their choice, then I can attend church service. Be careful that our one more action does not reflect or reflects that God is not the priority. A New Testament commentator put it like this, Discipleship is not a second job, a moonlighting task, an ice cream social or a hobby. It is the product of God's calling and should be pursued with appropriate seriousness. See, that's the reason why Christ replies, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, in those days, farmers had to plow their land manually. And the only way that they could plow it accurately was to look and pick a tree in the distance and pull their plow manually or guide their animal manually to that single point. If they change direction, the plow will just, they'll have to start everything all over again. It's like if you're a competitive swimmer, right? You'll stay in your lane, laser focus, and you chung for that one point. That's what the commitment in serving the kingdom of God is like. We make a firm decision and we never look back. One caveat, Christ is not talking about salvation. He's not saying that you need to do this in order to earn salvation. He's talking about fit for the kingdom of God. It's not a salvation issue. It's about being His servant, being His disciple. So the firm commitment here is to give our all in a single direction. As the song says, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. And so we consider these three cases. 
the case of passionate desire, I want to follow you, Lord. The case of a gracious invitation, we feel Christ saying, come, follow me. Or we find ourselves in the shoes of that final case that we are hesitant to commit. We are saying one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. I want us to notice this, that in the Gospel of Luke, this would-be disciple is unnamed. In all three instances, the would-be disciple is unnamed. It's almost as if Luke is writing to us and saying, do you see yourself in that? Do we see ourselves in that? Are we the ones who are that one with the passionate desire, but then when we see the reality of it, we think twice? Are we the ones who feel God calling us, graciously inviting us to follow Him, and we are not sure? We want to complete social obligations before we can do that. Or are we the ones who hesitate, who say, one more thing, uh, one more thing, uh, one more thing. And notice too, that in all three cases, no response to Christ is recorded. Jesus says, follow me, or he says, I will follow you, Jesus responds something, bang, next case. The same pattern repeats. And it's almost as if Luke is telling us, put yourself in those shoes, how do we respond? If we see ourselves in that story, if we are one of those would-be disciples, how do we respond to the call of Christ? that in the face of the reality of the weight of the cost of discipleship, a call that commands us to relinquish our security, a call that demands of us to put Christ as the number one priority above all else, a call that challenges us to make a firm direction, a firm commitment in one direction rather, how do we respond? Amidst the trials and struggles and challenges of life, amidst the victories and highs and celebrations, where will we be found? That is what it's calling us to. Where if we think of our baptism vows, this is what, these are the things that all of us who are baptized have declared that we believe and trust in God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we renounce the devil, his works, and the empty show and glory of the world and all desires of the flesh, that we will fight valiantly under the banner of Christ. And at the very beginning of the liturgy, it was declared that we are here to pledge our allegiance to Christ and reject all that is evil. That is war language. That is language of commitment. That is language that says we have pledged our wholehearted devotion, our wholehearted loyalty to the one and only King. That is what we have committed to individually for the baptism candidates and for all of us who declare ourselves as being baptized in Christ. We have pledged our allegiance to Him. We have said, God, in the midst of it all, 
I will stand by your side. One final story to capture this thought. I'm going to pull it from Homer's Odyssey. The story is told of how Odysseus is returning home in victory. The ship that he is captain of has to go past the Isle of Sirens, these bunch of creatures who sing and offer sweet nothings and tempt the sailors to jump into the sea. And Odysseus says, I want to get home. That is my final goal. And so he tells his companions on the ship, tie me to the mast of the ship. Tie me to the centre of the ship so that I will not be able to be tempted to jump into the sea, no matter how sweet those sirens may sing. That is a picture of what it means to pledge our allegiance to Christ. That is a picture of what it means to be homeward bound into the victory of Christ and to say, no matter what comes my way, I have pledged my allegiance and tied myself to the cross that is Christ. That's the same idea that we can think about our baptism. That when we pledge our allegiance, we are tying ourselves to the mast of Christ to bring us home through the battles and we are saying that no matter the challenges, no matter the temptation, no matter the trials, no matter the issues, no matter what may come, come thick and thin, come high and low, I pledge my allegiance to Christ. And if we are going through a tough time right now, may these words from Paul encourage us. That whatever gain you may have or I may have, we can count as loss for the sake of Christ. That indeed we can count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ our Lord. That for His sake we have suffered the loss of all things, but we count them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That each of us here may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by, that by any means possible, we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That today, our cry and our call as a church, as the baptism candidates, is that we are declaring our allegiance to Christ. That no matter what may come, we choose the kingdom of God. <laughs> no matter what may come, we choose to be on the side of Christ. We're going to sing a song as part of our response. And this song is, is written by a Malaysian who's currently serving in Singapore. And this song has very, very weighty words. But in the past few weeks, there are words that have spoken to me personally. And it reflects totally this call 
that we have, the vows that we have taken before Christ. And we're not going to ask us to sing it in terms of the congregation. We will sing it over us. But I want us to reflect and take the weight of these words to pierce deep into our hearts that we choose to stay on this path to stay committed to Christ no matter what comes.